Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to do a basic review of vasoactive medications. We'll first look at the receptors that these medications act on, And then we'll talk about the medications that are used in the OR and definitely in the ICU to treat low blood pressure in order to raise blood pressure and then in order to lower acutely elevated blood pressure. So this won't be every drug that's possibly used for this. We'll focus on the most common ones, their mechanisms, the doses you should use, and when you should think about using them. This came in response to a request from Valerie in Colorado. So Valerie, I hope this is useful for you and for many others out there. Thanks for listening, and thanks for making the request. Before we start, I have just a few comments. The first is that it's just a few days after Donald Trump won the election in the United States, and a lot of people have a lot of really mixed feelings about that. I don't think this is the place to talk about who I think should have won, but I do want to say that I think regardless of who you supported, regardless of who you voted for, if you live in the United States and you voted, I think we can all agree that the increase in racially motivated attacks, slurs, kids in schools being made fun of and attacked for their race or gender or immigration status, I think we can all agree that no matter who you voted for for president, this is not the kind of thing that we should be allowing to happen in our country. This is not the kind of thing we should be condoning. And so I would urge all of you regardless of your political party, regardless of who you voted for, to stand up and take a stand against the kind of cruelty that has sprouted up since the election. And just make it clear that while you may have supported Trump, you don't support this and you think it should stop. All right, let's get started with our topic for the day, review of basic vasoactive meds. So let's start with uh, a little bit of talk about the receptors themselves. So we're going to talk about alpha, beta, a little bit, little bit about vasopressin and dopamine, and then I'll mention what is not a receptor, the phosphodiesterase system, because it'll come into play here with one of the medications we'll talk about. So again, just to review, alpha-1, the alpha-1 receptor is uh, a G-protein-coupled receptor, specifically GQ, and it leads to increased calcium in the muscle cells, and then smooth muscle contraction. Alpha-2 receptor, so this is also a G-coupled, G-I-O, protein-coupled, and it's mainly presynaptic negative feedback, okay? And this is the alpha-2 receptor. Agonists are things like dexmedetomidine and clonidine and can provide some antihypertensive effect as well as... um, some anxiolysis and some sedation. Uh, So we're not going to really deal with alpha-2 today. Beta-1, GS protein coupled, mainly found in cardiac muscle. It increases cyclic AMP, which can do a variety of things, including increasing heart rate, contractility, and AV nodal conduction. The beta-2 receptor is GS protein coupled. It's a smooth muscle relaxer, especially uh, and most significantly for us, peripherally in the vasculature and in the lungs. 
There's also a beta-3 receptor, which leads to lipolysis. We're not going to worry about that today. The V1 receptors, so these are vasopressin receptors. So there are a variety of vasopressin receptors, but for our purposes today, we're going to talk only about the V1 receptor, which is G-protein coupled and leads to smooth muscle contraction. The dopamine receptor, again, there are a variety of dopamine receptors, but they tend to, or some of them lead to smooth muscle contraction. And then the uh, phosphodiesterase, specifically we'll talk about phosphodiesterase 3. So phosphodiesterase 3 breaks down cyclic AMP. So when you inhibit phosphodiesterase 3, you then prevent the breakdown of cyclic AMP, providing therefore more cyclic AMP. And in the cardiac cells, that's going to do the same thing as beta-1. It will increase the heart rate and contractility and AV nodal conduction. In the periphery, it will lead to smooth muscle relaxation. So let's talk about some specific medications. I'm going to divide these into two categories, essentially. The first are going to be vasopressors. So a lot of times we refer to any vasoactive medication as a presser, but that is incorrect. When we say presser, we mean vasopressors. And when we say vasopressors, these are going to be things that, at least in part, if not in total, act as vasoconstrictors on the peripheral vasculature. And those will be, and we'll talk more about them in a second, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, phenylephrine, and I'll toss ephedrine in there as well. And then the second category are going to be our inodilators. And so these are going to be medications that provide inotropy and also peripheral vasodilation, except for one that doesn't quite fit in there. And so the two that are fit well are the dobutamine and milrinone. And then I put isoproteranol in there just to mention it. it. It does have a little bit of peripheral dilation because it does have some beta-2 agonism, but it's primarily a beta-1 agonist. All right. So epinephrine. Epinephrine is an alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2 agonist. So it hits all the alpha and beta receptors. At lower doses, which I'm going to think of as somewhere in the 0.01 to maybe 0.03 or 0.04 range, maybe a little higher, it's mostly going to be a beta-1 agonist. It's going to provide inotropy without a lot of peripheral vasoconstriction. But at higher doses, as you get up to maybe 0.08, 0.1 and above, you're going to start to get both uh, and these doses are mics per kilo per minute, you're going to start to get uh, some alpha constriction as well. And certainly at code doses, if you're giving a bolus of epinephrine, a milligram of epinephrine during a code, that is going to have a huge amount of alpha-1 agonism, which is going to cause that vasoconstriction. Norepinephrine is similar to epinephrine, but it's beta-1, alpha-1, and alpha-2 with very minimal to no beta-2. So this is really mostly going to be an positive inotrope, beta-1 causing positive inotropy in the heart, and a lot of alpha peripherally. So really a strong vasoconstrictor, a strong presser, and very little beta-2 agonism. So the other thing with epinephrine where you get that beta-2 is with anaphylaxis where you have bronchoconstriction, epinephrine will relax your bronchial smooth muscle through the beta-2 receptor. Norepinephrine will not do that because it lacks that beta-2. Dopamine is 
a fairly dirty drug in that it acts all over the place. It acts at alpha-1, beta-1, beta-2, and all the dopamine receptors. We'll come back to what exactly that means. Phenylephrine is a more selective drug that acts mostly at just the alpha-1 receptor and so causes peripheral vasoconstriction. Ephedrine acts indirectly. It stimulates the release of norepinephrine and then does all the things, therefore, that norepinephrine does, but it does it indirectly. And because it's indirect and it's stimulating the release of norepinephrine, it will get, you'll get less and less effect as you give multiple doses of ephedrine uh, in bolus form. But we don't really use this as, a, as an infusion. Ephedrine we just use as a bolus. And you can get good effect from it, but it then will uh, have a decrement in, in its effect. So going back up, we talked about, uh, for the vasopressors, we talked about epinephrine hitting all of the alpha and beta receptors. We talked about norepinephrine, the same except not beta 2. Dopamine, again, was alpha, beta, and dopamine. And so adding that dopamine, in theory, causes some increased blood flow to the kidneys. But in reality, there's not been any evidence to support what we used to believe, which is that low-dose dopamine was renal dose, in that it was in any way renal protective, increased urine output in any way that led to better outcomes, or even that in, in all comers, a low dose would affect the dopamine receptors more than any other. The thought used to be that low-dose dopamine would just activate the dopamine receptors, leading to increased blood flow to the kidneys, and then as you got higher doses, you got the alpha and beta, and it turns out that for some people, low doses is more alpha, more beta, more dopamine. It's not consistent, and it doesn't improve renal outcomes. And then we talked about phenylephrine as alpha-1, so just peripheral constriction, no effect on beta, therefore no effect on the heart, and ephedrine, which mimics norepinephrine, but indirectly. All right, <clears throat> let's move on to the inodilator. So dobutamine, dobutamine is a beta-1 and to a lesser extent beta-2 agonist. So what does this mean? The beta-1 effects of dobutamine cause all of the effects on the heart. So the increased inotropy, meaning the heart squeezes harder and produces a higher cardiac output, and increased AV nodal conduction, increased heart rate. The beta-2, which is not quite as significant as the beta-1, but it does have beta-2 action, is what causes peripheral vasodilation, and therefore you can actually get some hypotension with dobutamine which could be a good thing if you're using this for heart failure. So for heart failure, you have someone whose heart isn't pushing very well. You want to help the heart push. The beta-1 action is going to help the heart push. But you also want it to have less to push against. So lowering the peripheral vascular resistance is going to allow your heart to push against a lower pressure and therefore have less work to do. So an inodilator like dobutamine is a perfect medication for heart failure as long as you don't make someone so hypotensive that they don't perfuse the other organs that need perfusing like their kidneys. Milrinone is a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor. So this is what we talked about before when I was talking about the phosphodiesterase 3 mechanism by Inhibiting phosphodiesterase 3, milrinone leads to more cyclic AMP in the cardiac myocytes, which in those cells causes the same things that dobutamine does, the same thing that the beta-1 receptor does. It causes increased inotropy, increased heart rate, increased AV nodal conduction. But that same effect peripherally, again, is a dilator. It causes peripheral vasodilation, 
by increasing cyclic AMP in the smooth muscle, and that leads to lower systemic blood pressure, lower systemic vascular resistance. Again, a good thing in heart failure, but a bad thing in someone who's already hypotensive and who needs more pressure to perfuse their organs. And isoproteranol, which is a beta-1 and beta-2 agonist, but mostly beta-1. So the main effect here is going to be on your cardiac myocytes causing increased heart rate primarily with some increased inotropy and increased AV nodal conduction. And your beta-2 peripheral effects are less significant, but there are some, some amount of vasodilation peripherally. So what side effects, what adverse side effects do you need to think about with these medications? So for inodilators, we talked a little, you need to worry about the potential for systemic hypotension because of that dilation of the peripheral vasculature. The other thing that can happen is that anytime you're causing increased inotropy and heart rate, anytime you're acting on the beta-1 receptor, you have a risk of causing arrhythmias. And so both milrinone and dobutamine and isoproteranol can cause arrhythmias, and the higher the dose, the more risk there is of arrhythmia. For your vasopressors, your epinephrine, your norepinephrine, any of them that have beta-1 agonism, so every one of them except vasopressin and phenylephrine, you're going to also have that same risk of arrhythmias. The other thing with anything that causes vasoconstriction peripherally, you're going to have to worry about getting peripheral and splanchnic ischemia at high doses. So these are the people who are on high doses of norepinephrine and end up with digital ischemia where they can lose their fingers and toes if they're on high doses for a long time because they don't get perfusion to their distal fingertips and toes. And of course, anyone who has any kind of anastomosis in the uh, intestines or even just at high doses, the intestines themselves without an anastomosis can really have a lack of blood flow and you can get intestinal ischemia. So while sometimes necessary for things like severe sepsis, high doses of norepinephrine can really have significant side effects. Okay, so knowing this, how do we treat hypotension? So the first and most important thing to remember is that we don't treat a number. You should treat the mechanism. You have to know the mechanism to figure out what's going on so that you know what to treat. You don't want to just say anyone who has low blood pressure should get this vasopressor. You need to know what's going on. In the operating room, post-induction, for example, you have to think broadly. Don't ever make an assumption, but almost always, right after you give a slug of propofol, the hypotension is from the peripheral vasodilation from the propofol. Right after you turn up your inhaled anesthetic gas, the hypotension is from the peripheral vasodilation from the inhaled anesthetic. And so using phenylephrine, or if the heart rate is low, ephedrine, are, these are what we commonly do to treat that hypotension, and it's appropriate because we're not treating the number, we're treating the underlying mechanism. All right, let's look at another example. How about septic shock? So we know from a variety of trials that in septic shock, norepinephrine, plus or minus vasopressin, and we won't get into that debate on this podcast, but norepinephrine is the vasopressor of choice. Dopamine is inferior to norepinephrine in that it causes more arrhythmias, and epinephrine is probably your second presser or third if you're going to use vasopressin, but norepinephrine should be your presser of choice. So if a patient is septic, then norepinephrine makes sense. And why does it make sense? Because you're dealing with peripheral vasodilation from sepsis, and you want something with really strong vasoconstriction to counteract that. 
and you may say, what about phenylephrine? The difference is that phenylephrine, because it has, first of all, it's weaker, so you're going to get less strength of your peripheral vasoconstriction, and also because it doesn't have any beta, phenylephrine will actually decrease your cardiac output. If you think about it, you're increasing your systemic vascular resistance, so your heart has to pump against more resistance, but you're not helping it do that pumping, so your cardiac output will go down, whereas norepinephrine increases your systemic vascular resistance, but also gives you some inotropy to help your heart push forward, and so actually increases your cardiac output. So in septic shock, we're going to use norepinephrine, and then we can add vasopressin. Cardiogenic shock. So here, we talked about heart failure, for example. What you need is inotropy, and you need the heart to be able to push forward. And so here's where if you are really systemically hypotensive, you're going to go with epinephrine because it's going to give you some inotropy and it's not going to drop your peripheral vascular resistance. But if you need to drop your peripheral vascular resistance, if you are have poor cardiac output and you're not in danger of too much hypotension, then dobutamine or milrinone are going to be great options. They'll help your heart push forward and they'll drop your systemic vascular resistance a little bit, which will help your heart push forward. Unfortunately, if you're already hypotensive, then you really aren't going to be able to do that. It'll make you more hypotensive, and you're not going to be perfusing your brain and your kidneys. In hemorrhagic shock, you're going to want to resuscitate. Pressors are not going to be your choice for hemorrhagic shock. Now, you might, while you're waiting for blood or you're pounding in the fluid or the blood, you may need to use some pressors because it takes some time to get that blood in. But giving pressors to compensate for hemorrhagic shock is not treating the underlying problem. It's trying to treat a number, and it's not going to be effective. Some other interesting cases, so aortic stenosis. Here, your heart is pushing against a fixed defect, and so your heart isn't actually seeing your peripheral vascular resistance. It's just seeing this fixed defect in the aortic valve that it's pushing against. So what you want is something that will raise your peripheral vascular resistance, and will also lower your heart rate, if anything. You don't want a fast heart rate because you need time for your left ventricle to fill and then try to push out against that, that stenotic aortic valve. And so the best presser that will, if anything, slow your heart rate a little and will cause increased systemic vascular resistance is going to be phenylephrine. Remember, it's that pure alpha-1 agonist, and so it will cause systemic vasoconstriction and then often causes some reflex bradycardia. So perfect for aortic stenosis. If you have someone who you suspect or know is in tamponade, pericardial tamponade, you want something that will keep their heart rate fast. You want something that will increase their inotropy. And so this is a perfect situation for epinephrine. So you want to have their heart beat fast. You want to have them push harder so they can get more blood out because it can't, the heart isn't going to be able to expand. It's, doesn't, it's not a matter of having time to fill. It can't fill because of the tamponade. And so you want a medication like epinephrine. What about dobutamine? So we talked about dobutamine. There's no such thing as renal dose dobutamine. And the only real time that that we think dobutamine is effective or is called for potentially would be hypotension with bradycardia. So this would be a time because dopamine will increase the heart rate quite a bit and will cause systemic vascular constriction that you can think about dopamine, but you have to really be careful of arrhythmias because even though all of these medications that have beta agonism can cause arrhythmias. Dopamine is probably the biggest offender. What if you have someone with pulmonary hypertension and systemic hypotension? So this is a tricky situation because almost all of these pressors that cause 
increased peripheral blood pressure will also cause increased pulmonary pressures. There's only one that doesn't, and that's vasopressin. Vasopressin doesn't affect the pulmonary pressure. It doesn't affect the pulmonary vascular resistance. It only increases systemic vascular resistance. And so that combination, someone with bad pulmonary hypertension, but systemic hypotension, vasopressin alone might be a reasonable option. Someone who has hypotension and they are having arrhythmias, lots of PVCs, or they're going in and out of arrhythmias, this is a situation where you need a presser, you might want to think about phenylephrine or vasopressin because neither of those has any beta agonism and so won't cause or worsen your arrhythmias. Now, I will say, remember, if your patient is hypotensive because of the arrhythmia, then you need to be thinking about cardioverting them, not worrying about pressors. But if, you, if they're stable but you need to treat the hypotension, or they're relatively stable but hypotensive, uh, or if it's not the arrhythmia that's causing the problem, for example, we don't cardiovert someone from having a lot of PVCs. So if you have someone who's having PVCs and you're worried that if you give them a beta-1 agonist, it might create an arrhythmia from those PVCs, it might take you from just PVCs to an actual arrhythmia, then you may want to try something that doesn't have any arrhythmogenicity like phenylephrine or vasopressin. All right, let's move on and talk about the vasodilators that we use in critical care. So we'll talk about four different ones, and it's not to say that there are no other treatments for hypertension. But when we're talking about in the ICU or often in the operating room, we really are going to be thinking about these four. And they are nicardipine, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, and maybe to a lesser extent, labetalol. So nicardipine is a calcium channel blocker. When it's used as an IV infusion, its onset is very rapid, about one to two minutes. But it has of of the of between nicardipine nitroglycerin and nitroprusside it has by far the longest duration so once the infusion is stopped the effect will take almost 30 minutes to decrease by half and to go away completely can take many hours this medication is usually measured in milligrams per hour it can be titrated anywhere from 0 to 15 usually you would start around 5 and then titrate for effect to your goal blood pressure The big downside of nicardipine, as I said, is that the the half-life is significantly longer. So if the patient gets hypotensive and you turn it off, they're not going to recover immediately. It will take some time. Nitroglycerin. So the mechanism of action of nitroglycerin is that it forms nitric oxide, NO, which leads to increased cyclic GMP and smooth muscle dilation. This primarily dilates coronary arteries and veins, the the systemic veins, which leads to decreased preload, and it has some small amount of decrease in afterload, but its mechanism is primarily through the decrease in preload. It has an onset incredibly rapid in about 30 seconds, and this one is very fast in its offset, so three to five minutes for the effect to go away completely once you turn off the infusion. Usually, you would start around five micrograms per minute, five mics per minute, and titrate up to a max of around 400 mics per minute. Very common for people to get a headache from this. Tachyphylaxis is very common, so a dose that may work initially, you'll need to keep titrating up as people need a higher dose to get the same effect, and eventually you may reach your max and and not be getting the effect that you need. This is a medication that isn't good for very long-term use because of that tachyphylaxis. The other thing to remember, of course, is that any patient who has taken a medication like Viagra cannot get nitroglycerin. It can be uh, fatal. Nitroprusside. 
So this is a medication that has direct action on arteriolar and venous smooth muscle, which leads to decreased afterload. It has a very rapid onset, about one minute, and an offset somewhere once the drip is stopped between one and 10 minutes. Usually you'll start around 0.3 mics per kilo per minute up to a max of Now, I'm going to say the max is 10 mics per kilo per minute, but really the max should be about 2 mics per kilo per minute to avoid very significant toxicity, which is cyanide toxicity. This medication, one of its uh, byproducts is cyanide. And so if you do go up to the max of 10 mics per kilo per minute, you can really only do that for about 10 minutes, and then you need to either stop the medication or go down significantly, uh, come up with another option for your hypertension because you'll be in real danger of cyanide toxicity. Labetalol is the final one, which is an alpha and beta blocker. Now, it's not equally alpha and beta. So the beta to alpha ratio for IV labetalol is 7 to 1. That means it's 7 times more beta than it is alpha. And for PO, it's actually 3 to 1, so very different between the IV and the PO form. With You can use an infusion, though most places we actually use labetalol just as an uh, IV push to treat hypertension in the OR or in the ICU, but you can do an infusion, and the infusion would start as low as 0.1 milligrams per minute and could go as high as 8 milligrams per minute. And then when we bolus, we usually bolus somewhere in the 10 to 20 milligram range and then can increase from there if the more is needed for effect. Labetalol is really the drug of choice for aortic dissections, and that's because it does it accomplishes both of our goals, which is lowering blood pressure and reducing inotropy. What you want in a dissection is to make sure you reduce heart rate, reduce blood pressure, and reduce the DPDT, which is that shearing force, the change in pressure over the change in time. You want the change in pressure to happen slowly, not quickly. If it happens quickly, that spike up in pressure that will cause a shearing force that you don't want in the setting of a dissection. So what would be bad in the setting of a dissection would be to just start something like nitroprusside, which is going to reduce your afterload and allow much more forward pressure, which is going to be bad for that dissection flap. So before you or in, in concert with your reduction in afterload, you want to also reduce your inotropy and your heart rate, and labetalol does all of that together. Its onset is in about 5 to 15 minutes after starting or giving a bolus or starting a drip, and it has a very long duration. It can last up to 15 hours. So again, this is not something that you want to use if you're, if you're worried you may end up with hypotension. It's not fast off at all. And it's also non-selective beta blocker, which means for people with asthma, it can be very problematic. I've mentioned some uh, downsides of all of these, some adverse reactions that can come from each of these as I went through. But the other thing to remember is that uh, at least with the first three, nicardipine, nitroglycerin, and nitroprusside, these can all cause shunting. So if you start someone on this and their oxygenation worsens, you need to think that they may be shunting. What happens is the dilatory effect interferes with hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, worsens VQ mismatch, and leads to poor oxygenation and shunting. So if you start someone, think about that if they're all of a sudden having worse oxygenation. All right, that's it for today. Remember, check out the website, acrac.com, acrac.com. You can leave comments on individual episodes. You can sign up for our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website, 
You'll get emails with new episodes and any other information I send around. And you can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. Go ahead and leave us a comment on the website. Let me know if you like the episode. Let me know if you use these vasopressors. Do you use different ones? Did I make any mistakes and you disagree with my description of how to use them or their mechanism of action? If you put it on the website, then we can all learn from your comments. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.